Good evening, everyone. You know, there are, you, you hear, um, you hear, you hear, um, you hear speakers say at times, um, it's really a privilege to be here. You've heard people say that. And I can tell you tonight that I believe it's really a privilege to be here. And uh, I am very thankful that I have been afforded this opportunity to be in your midst tonight. I know there is a clock on the wall. I can't see it because it's one of the, it's one of the gifts um, Father Time gives you. And if you, like I once did, look at people about my age and say, why do they squint all the time? If you haven't learned that by experience, there's a good chance that you will. And I don't wish that upon you, but it's just a fact. And I've learned it the hard way. So if we're still here in about an hour and a half, I'll be looking at the clock, probably thinking, oh, I've still got 20 minutes left because I can't see the clock very well. So pray for me, brothers and sisters. Pray for me. I know we're here for a great reason. We're here to take a few nights to look at the Bible and be revived and be encouraged. Uh, and I'm going to confess a couple of things as we begin. I believe that the Bible is a book that encourages, and I believe that the God of heaven is a God that brings revival to our lives. That's just what I bring. However, I believe, I guess I have a little bias, a little prejudice, I believe that the revival really happens when the people and the Bible get in connection with each other. That's what I think. I think there is power in the Word of God. That's what I think. And uh, I would like to say that I have learned that um, from experience. Well, I know that over the next few days I'll have lots of time to, to, to talk about this and that and to get off topic and waffle and show you pictures of my kids and all of that. But I'm going to try to make a good impression by starting right at the beginning and finishing early. So allow me to pray and we'll get into the Bible and expect God to bless us tonight. Let us pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> I'm going to start that again. Father in heaven, thank you that we can be together in this place this evening. I thank you tonight that we can come to you in the name of Jesus, your son. I believe that each person who is here tonight has come anticipating a blessing and so I pray that you would pour out your spirit in a way that would be blessed and Lord not to speak in code I am asking that you would be here personally and that you would would clear the distractions from our mind that you would um, give us a kind of a laser like focus that we would have clarity for the next 30 minutes or so that that our minds would be gripped by you and that when we go from here, we will go uh, uh, feeling like we have been blessed, knowing that we have been benefited, confident that your word is truly the word, and certain that we can lean on you, knowing you can be leaned upon. So please, Lord, be heard. I pray that you would not rely on the frailty of fallen human instrumentality but that you would verily speak in a voice that we would recognize and elicit from us a response that will be translated into a lifetime change. Please lead us, we ask you. Thanks for bringing us together tonight. Guide us, I beg of thee. In Jesus' name, please join me in saying, Amen. In a previous life, 
I worked as a radio broadcaster. Um, after my university days, I worked uh, on several radio stations, and I was the guy you'd hear in the morning telling the jokes and, and playing the records, well, CDs. Um, as a matter of fact, when I began, it was largely records, so there you go. Uh, playing the music, giving away the money, and, and running the contests and all that. That's what I did. And while I was working in uh, radio, there was a band that we began to play on our radio stations named Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli. I don't expect that anyone will have heard of Millie Vanilli, but if you have, bonus points. I'll give you extra credit. Millie Vanilli. Here's how Millie Vanilli came to um, exist. There was a German music producer whose name was Frank... F oh, that's what happened earlier, huh? Whose name was Frank Farian. Frank Farian. And Frank Farian assembled a group of musicians, session musicians they were, and he discovered that he had put together a really good sound. It was a really good sound, except he had a problem. The musicians were session musicians, and they didn't look much like um, poster pin-up boys and girls. Well, boys, as a matter of fact, they were men. They didn't look like the sort of guys, well, let's put it this way. It's going to be hard to sell uh, millions of records to uh, uh, swooning teenage girls if the musicians are balding, fat, middle-aged men. Hard to pull that off. So, he said, here's what we do. We pull together a group that looks good. Looks good. So, he found two aspiring musicians. Their names were uh, Rob Pilatus and Fabrice Morvan. Rob and Fab. He pulled them together. They were both very good-looking, so I'm told, and they could dance very well. And, and they had the added uh, talent that they could act. They could lip-sync very, very well. So while they were on stage, the music would play, and they would dance, and they would lip-sync. They would mime like they were singing the songs. And evidently, they did it pretty well. And you probably know as well as I do that that practice is very widespread. I sat on a plane the other day with a guy who was one of Madonna's backup dancers, or even front-up dancers. He showed me the video clip. He said, that's me and my buddy dancing with Madonna. And there they were. And I said, so does Madonna sing live or does she lip-sync? He said, well, it depends. It depends. Sometimes live, sometimes lip-syncing. He said, it's very hard to sing well while you're dancing. So if they're dancing, it's lip-synced. And these guys danced a lot, and it was always lip sync because they couldn't sing. So, Millie Vanilli was born with Rob and Fab up front, and the records started to sell. They had several number one records. Uh, I want to say it was 1988. I should just say it with confidence and trust that you won't Google it. So in 1988, they even won the Grammy Award for Best New Artist. They sold millions of records, and millions of albums and won the Grammy Award. But now it was time for their second album to come out, their second album. And because these poor uh, artists were lacking um, adequate self-expression, they went to Frank Farian and they said, Frank, we need to sing on the next album. And Frank laughed and said, well, that'll never happen. And they said, Frank, we have to sing. Yeah, I mean, we are artists, man, and we want to be on the record actually doing the art. 
And Frank said, boys, that's just, that's just not even within the scope of reality. And as a matter of fact, he was a smart man. When I was living in England, I heard one of these fellows on a television talk show singing. And it was bad. I mean, it was so bad. You, Frank got it right. Bad. He said, there's no way in the world I could let you sing. They said, Frank, if you don't let us sing, we will go to the world and tell the world that it has all been a hoax. And he picked up his phone right in front of them, and he called a journalist, and as the phone was ringing, he said, I'll beat you to it. And he announced to the news of the world, that's not the newspaper, that's the collective term, he announced to the news organizations of the world that Millie Vanilli wasn't really Millie Vanilli. It was a phony. It was a fake it was a fraud. The whole thing was a sham. I believe they were even asked to give back their Grammy Award. Now, the boys decided that they would try to make it on their own. Didn't work out. One of them died of a drug overdose. One of them, as I told you, tried to ply his trade, but he was very bad, and he couldn't sing and didn't get any gigs and didn't record any more records. It was terrible. Millie Vanilli, like other bands, in fact, like other bands that Frank had managed, they weren't the real deal. Now, we live in a world where there is a lot that isn't the real deal. We live in a world that has been airbrushed and surgically enhanced. We live in a world where there is fake everything. Substitute, you know, as Adventists, we like that, some of that. But where there's an analog or a substitute or a something or other for everything. And you can live with that. You can live with some fiction in your life. You can live with looking at a magazine cover and saying, well, there's no way in the world that's the real thing. It's been changed and altered and the teeth have been straightened. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, since I joined It Is Written, I have, I have experienced the wonders of Photoshop. <laughs> if you ever see a picture of me in a church magazine, don't ask you can safely know it's been photoshopped. Just like that. The wrinkles are gone. Look for a wrinkle. You won't find them. The teeth are white. My teeth aren't white. Um, the one thing they haven't been able to do is add more hair, and I'm bummed about that. <laughs> There's a lot in this world that's fake and phony and not quite true, and that's not really a big problem except except for when it comes to our spiritual lives then it's a problem jesus encountered this in his day there are a lot of people in the church who were fakes they were phonies they weren't real he he, he spoke to the um pharisees the religious leaders of his day one day and he called them whited sepulchers whited sepulchers. When I was a child, I'd go up to the cemetery very often because in my church I was an altar boy and I was always at funerals and they'd end up at the cemetery. And, and, and the old part of the cemetery had these, now they weren't sepulchers, but uh, well, about this big actually, as big as one of these sections up on this platform where they would cover the grave up in the old days with concrete. It was like they wanted to make sure no one got out. And they'd cover it up with concrete and paint it white and they were magnificent, they were magnificent. But you knew that down there beneath the ground wasn't pretty. Jesus said these people were whited sepulchers. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were corrupt. He even went so far as to call them hypocrites. 
That is, that is, they would say and profess one thing, but the actual doing of their lives was represented by altogether different actions. So in Jesus' day, you had some phonies in the church. How about in our day? How about in our day? Are there phonies in the church? Let's not take a vote. Let's not, let's not start naming names. But what a problem when there are phonies in the church. What a problem when you might be one of the phonies in the church. What a problem. You know what's interesting is that the God of heaven calls for above all things honesty. He doesn't make a demand. I've got to be careful how I'm quoted here. His demand in the book of Revelation is for honesty. One way or the other, God says, I just wish you'd be straight up. Not a milly vanilly Christian making all the right moves, but really not producing the sound. God says, I just wish you'd get real. I'm opening up my Bible and I invite you to do the same if you have your Bible with you to Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Revelation 3 and verse 14. Now, in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, the Apostle John writes the letters to the seven churches, and you've heard this said before, I expect. Those seven churches represent, even though they were real churches and in genuine geographical locations, they have come to represent different ages of the Christian church down through time. And here, uh, John writes to the church at Laodicea, which we believe correlates with God's church in these last days. So even though he was writing to that church in literal Laodicea, the message has a special application for the church of God living down here in the close of time. And he writes to these people, he says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, and this is being dictated by Jesus. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. All right, here's what Jesus has to say. And he says something that could be a little bit disquieting. He says, I know your works. That might not always be a good thing for God to tell a person. Maybe from God's perspective it's a good thing, but it's not always a good thing for the person to hear. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying God should say otherwise, but if God were to come up to you and say, I know what you've been up to, that could worry you just a little bit. At least that could make you feel a little unstable. I mean, how many times have your parents, don't answer, how many times have your parents said, I know what you've been up to, and it's left you thinking, oh no, I was hoping they wouldn't find out. Jesus says, I know your works. All right, so that's a fact. And then he goes on to say this. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here that I think you'll probably agree with, and I think is reasonably safe. Cold, that would be altogether against God. Cold, stone cold, fire Fire has gone out. Hot, on the other hand, way over here, that would be someone who has really fired up about God and fully committed to God. And so, Jesus says, I know, you're, I know what you've been up to. I know what you're like. You are neither cold, you're not fully against me, nor are you hot, you're not fully for me. All right, so where does that leave a person? I know that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, notice what he says. 
What he says next is one of the most radical statements in the entire Bible. I firmly believe that. He says, I would, or in other words, it is my wish that you were either cold or hot. Now, you can understand Jesus saying, I wish that you were fully paid up over here, totally committed. That's what I wish. But Jesus says, not just that. He says, my wish is that you are either this or that you're this, way over here, stone cold. Stop and think about that. This is Jesus, righteous Jesus. I have kept my Father's commandments, Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, my preference is that you are either for me or stone cold dead set against me. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd for Jesus to say that? What could be so bad that it's worse being against God? What Jesus tells us. Let me go to my Bible here and I'll read this verse. I would thou wert cold or hot. He goes on to say, so then, because you are, what? Lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. And please don't think that's vindictiveness on Jesus' part. I've spoken to some medical people about this phenomenon of vomiting. And if you'll allow me to be agricultural for a moment, we'll discuss it, shall we? Vomiting. Vomiting Correct me if I'm wrong, please, <laughs> please don't demonstrate. Vomiting is not a voluntary action, right? I mean, if you're chewing on watermelon, you can say, watch, th watch this, and you can spit that seed. But I've never had people sitting around saying, oh, watch this. It doesn't happen. And you don't want it to happen. Vomiting is an involuntary reaction. It's the sort of thing we go, no, I think I'm going to be, I think, oh, right? And you kid yourself and go, no, I'm good. I'm good now. I had that cup of tea. <laughs> I'm fine now. It's an involuntary reaction. Jesus says, because you are not cold nor hot, because you are lukewarm somewhere in the middle, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. It's not that I want to. It's that I have to. It's, it's just what, I have no other option but to spew you out of my mouth. Well, why, Jesus? Why do you have no other option? He tells us here, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And because you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what he says. That's the problem. You've got a bunch of milly vanilly Christians. It's not that they're cold. God can work with that. It's not that they're hot. God can work with that. But it's that they're lukewarm. They are deluded. They're deceiving themselves. How can God help a person who doesn't recognize her or his need? How can God lift a person up who won't realize that he is down? How can God fill a person who doesn't confess to being empty? How? Cannot do it. And so a problem God has is there's a bunch of people in the world who aren't getting real. Why mention this tonight? Because this is addressed to God's last day church and by the looks of the calendar, brothers and sisters, that's you and me. So this would be a message that God would have us consider. Where do I fit in this thing? Is it time for a 
reality check. A reality check. You know, when it comes to the Bible, I think what we can do with some uh, certainty is deal with realities. Realities. And you know, before I, I moved to It Is Written, I was pastoring in College Place, Washington. That's one of those towns like College Dale, Tennessee. You don't know what in, what in the world that town is, is for um, by, the, by the name, but when you say, oh, that's where Walla Walla University is, or that's when Southern Adventist University you know, all right, I understand now. College Place is the town where Walla Walla University is. For the life of me, I don't know why they don't call it uh, College Place University, but um, actually there's probably a very good reason for that. Now, when I was pastoring up there and I had a lot to do with students, there's something that surprised me. It surprised me. And that was how many students declared themselves, they came out of the closet and announced that they were, at least in their opinion, agnostic. Agnostic. Now that surprised me. Uh, the, 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 the naive side of me said, how can people at a Christian school be agnostic? And then the other side of me said, well, what is an agnostic? So I'm going to read it to you, the definition. You probably know what an agnostic is, but I will read this to you. A person who holds that the existence of the ultimate cause as God and the essential nature of things are unknown and unknowable, or that human knowledge is limited to experience. That's the definition of an agnostic. So, it struck me as surprising that you can have a brilliant young person getting 3.9, 4.0 GPA, uh, stellar student, doing great, who says, you know, one thing I don't know, I don't know if there's a God. Frankly, I don't believe it. I imagine if you polled students on, on, on your average Christian campus, there'd be some genuine agnostics. I think there'd be a bunch of others who are just lying. And they're hiding behind, well, I don't really understand, as an excuse uh, for, for what? For, um, well, let's just be straight, as an excuse for their poor behavior. That's what I think. You mean to, t you mean to tell me that, that, that kids who come to college, generally bright kids, can't figure out if there's a God? Go out, so, well, tonight, it's not going to help you at night, but go out during the day and take a look at the autumn colors and ask yourself, is that an accident? Or did, be did, did beauty just exist from out of nowhere, come from out of nowhere? Or, or, or is there a divine hand somewhere behind that? I don't want to get into the whole, the merits of creation, etc., 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 even though I just dipped my toe in that pond. But it's this idea that brilliant people cannot come to a conclusion as to whether or not there is a God. I, I, I looked up, I looked up. This is an internet list. So you're just going to have to assume that the, that the internet listed quotes from all of these people. These are people who state that they're agnostics. Stanley Kubrick, the filmmaker, Mark Twain, the writer, Warren, Bu Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett can figure out how to make $50 billion starting with nothing. But he's unsure whether or not there's a God. To me, that's just stunning. Zac Efron, movie guy, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia in the Star Wars movie. Steve Wozniak, really a guy who, who changed America. Changed America. Brilliant guy, great inventor. He could figure out how to, how to make a personal computer when there wasn't one, and yet he's not sure if there's a God. Matt Groening from The Simpsons, Sting, the musician. Einstein, 
I mean, I'm just taking someone's word for it, and they, they offer, quote, Einstein worked out the theory of relativity and was able to say, no, I'm not sure that there is a God. You know, I just, I, I find it hard to buy. I find it hard to buy. So I'm operating from the premise that there certainly is a God. There's either a God or, or, or life is meaningless. We're either here for a reason or we're here for no reason. You can choose no reason if you want, but that sounds like an unreasonable way to live. If we deal with reality, the reality is there is a God. No, I understand that's my subjective position. If you take a different position, I will respect that. Of course I'll respect that. But I'm operating from that viewpoint that there is a God. Now listen, if there is a God, there are some other realities that we want to take on board. Some realities. If there is a God, then all of us are sinners. Because if there is a God, then surely his Bible is, the, the Bible is the word of God. Again, that's my subjective proposition to you, but that's where I'm coming from. The Bible says that all of us are sinners, all of us. Now that's a reality check. You don't get to say, I'm less of a sinner than that person. I'm not really a sinner. She's worse than I am. The Word of God says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. That's reality. Milli Vanilli can't face reality. Many Christians today living in a state of unreality. But the reality is there is a God. We are sinners on this earth and we have come short of his glory. We have tripped up, we have messed up, and we have scrambled up our lives. Sin has come in and made a mess where God never intended there to be a mess. I think it's important to understand that. God makes sinners the greatest offer made to any creature that ever existed. The greatest offer. It's an interesting thing that Jesus said to sinners, come to me and I will give you rest. This, this, was the, this was the maker of the universe, walking among a group of people who were plotting to kill him. And he said, you know what I'd like to do for you? If it was me, I'd be saying, I'd like to, I'd like to wring your neck. That's what I want to do. But it's Jesus. And he says, I just want you to come to me so I can give you rest. That's what I want to do. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You can be the biggest wretch, the worst sinner, the most dysfunctional person. You can come to Jesus and know that he won't reject you. And you know, if you stop and think about this, I believe this will be an encouragement, even to those of us who are secure in our faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody was watching our, our I, I have a little daily devotional that I do at the It Is Written website. This is a minute long. What can you do in a minute, Right. A young lady emailed us. She said, today I decided I would kill myself. But then I watched this devotional. And I decided that if what you're saying is true, if God really does care about me, I might as well continue to live my life. So I've postponed my funeral. Good news. So there are some realities in the Word of God. There is a God. We are sinners. And yet God calls us to come to Him as we are. And this is where the power of the Bible starts to be unleashed in our lives. Powerful. 
God calls to us. He doesn't want to force our hand. It's like Elijah back when he was on top of Mount Carmel. He called all those lying prophets together. All those Israelites came together and he said to them, How long halt ye or or flip-flop back and forwards between two opinions? His call was, if God is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Just make a decision. Don't live a lie. Why be a phony? Just get real. If you believe that there is a God, then for goodness sake, follow God. If you don't, if you really think that Baal is the one, follow Baal. That's fine. Be honest. Get real. Should we make a decision that we're going to follow Baal, God will honor that decision, but he won't let us go without a fight. And that's wonderful to know. And when we acknowledge that God is God, we can look in the mirror and see our sins, our warts, our brokenness, our our dysfunction, our inadequacy, and know that that's okay. In as much as God has promised to take care of all that. Come to me, I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And then a verse that I think lately has become my my go-to verse in all of the Bible. We'll hear it several times this week. Philippians. Turn to the book of Philippians. That's how we say it in New Zealand. We say Philippians. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence also, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't need to analyze that so much. The next verse will clear it up for us. He's not saying work your way to heaven. He's not saying this one's on you. He's not saying you are responsible for figuring out eternal life. He says this, verse 13. You have got to see this verse. The Bible says, For it is God which works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Friend of God, I want to encourage you tonight. There is no reason even one of us should not get real with God. Sin should never keep us from God. Inadequacy should never keep us from coming to God. Failure should never keep us from coming to God. Screwing up things here and there and there and here and again and again. Keep coming to God. And if we take God at His word and learn to cooperate with Him in faith, the Bible says God will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure you know all god is inviting us to do is simply front up at his throne and say here i am if you want me you're welcome to me that's it and i will let you work in my life that's a prayer you can pray if you want to talk about a new beginning and revival and reformation Ours is to make a decision. Ours is to yield and then expect God to do in our lives that which we could never do ourselves. Never. I read a book called Steps to Christ. If you can find yourself a copy of that book and you haven't read it in a while, I want to encourage you to read it. It's just such a powerful verse. There's a wonderful statement 
In this book, Steps to Christ, here it is. It says this. Our great need. Now, let's just park that thought right there. I need to ask you a question. If you were to look in your lives, if, uh, life, you don't have lives, you're a life. If you were to look in your life and do a moral inventory, do you think if you looked hard enough, you could find any spiritual need in your life? Any spiritual lack in your life? Do you think if you looked hard enough, you could identify any spiritual incompleteness in your life? Any imperfection in your life? It's a rhetorical question, I know. Here's the statement. Our great need is itself an argument and pleads most eloquently in our behalf. I invite you to stop and think about that. It's an amazing little lineup of words. Our great need, if you have a spiritual need, you have all the credentials necessary to come to God and expect Him to work in your life. Our great need is itself an argument, and it pleads most eloquently in our behalf. You know, there's the story. A fellow who's a, was he a centurion? I think it was a, he is a centurion. You read it in Luke chapter 7. And, uh, and the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you ought to help this man. His servant is deathly ill. Help him. Here's why. He's given money so we could build a church. He's been very good to us. He has, he has been a patron of our religious beliefs down here. So help the brother because he is worthy. And when Jesus had an audience with the man, the man said, don't come down to my house because I'm not worthy. Was he worthy, yes or no? Well, I mean, no and yes. Did his gifts to the church, his, his, his patronization or his patrony of, of the, the, the Jewish work in that town, did that make him worthy? Could he earn worthiness in the sight of God? Not possible. But the fact that he was needy, the fact that he had this, this ache in his life, the fact that there was a gap that only God could fill made him, let's just use that word, worthy in the sight of God. What does the Bible say? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saves us. Let's understand at the beginning of this week of meetings that there is a great God who longs to have us come to him and just be real. Lord, I need you in my life. Lord, I'm not doing a great job of keeping this thing on the rails. Lord, even though I may not be a basket case, I sometimes veer over this way or that way. Maybe I stumble and fall. Lord, you've got to help me. And if you pray that prayer, the Lord is right there lifting you up, filling you with his Holy Spirit, giving you his assurance that the God who made you loves you, the God who sees you, buoys you up. The God who hears the sound of your voice will answer your prayer and supply your need because he has promised to do so. That's what we can glean from the Word of God. God says, you cold? That's not such a problem. Hot? That's not a problem at all. But in the middle, fooling yourself. Bunch of kids come to uh, church colleges fooling themselves. They say, well, man, Dad took me to Sabbath school when I was a child. I never went to church every, I went to church every week and never did eat any of that stuff that I'm not supposed to eat. Hello, holy Translation, just around the corner. Maybe not. Maybe you have a deep need of Jesus in your life. Uh, we sometimes sanctify our, our sins and make excuses for them. Mm, that's not the way forward either. 
Our great need is itself an argument that pleads most eloquently in our behalf. If you have a need, if you, if you can recognize your need, if you can say, Lord, I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be over here where it's hot. That's where I want to be. But maybe if I'm here or here, God help me. God help me. Will God help you? Yes, he will. God can revive your spiritual life. God can give you a burning love for him. God can give you a, 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 an orientation in your life that keeps you following Jesus and his leading. I was presenting some evangelistic series. It was in this state, funny enough, in the state of Tennessee. And... Um, lady came to me and said, Pastor, I wish you'd talk to my husband. He's really in a mess. He's doing some bad stuff. Um, I wish you'd talk to him. I said, I would love to talk to him. Somehow, the two of us got together, the, the man and myself. The man was in his early 50s, I'm guessing. I mean, let's, let's add a few more years to him. He was about mid, mid, to, late, mid to late 50s. He said to me, John, he said, uh, I've heard everything that you are saying. Oh, I said, tell me more. He said, the fact of the matter is I have taught what you are teaching in this series of meetings. I've taught it. You did? Yes, he said. Years ago, I attended an evangelistic series and was baptized. We joined the church, I became a deacon, then I became an elder, and then I became involved in the church school, and then the moment my daughter left academy, I left the church and I never came back. I was meeting together with the man, I, I immediately figured out what his problem was, it wasn't hard to figure out. So I'm sitting here in this little room in the church, and his wife is here, and he's here, and we're sitting talking together. She cuts in and she says, oh, pastor, he has some real problems. He's doing some stuff that he just shouldn't be doing. I said, that's okay, sister, that's okay. We're going to talk about that. And so we talk some more and he talks about oh, just a little bit about his life and, and so on. And then she speaks again. And she says, oh, pastor, my husband's just doing some bad stuff. And he's got some real problems. You'd hardly believe some of the things that he is up to. And I said, you know, sister, this is all right. I'm not worried about that. This is not the burden of our conversation right now. We spoke a little bit longer, and I said to him, listen, here's what I want you to do. Do something for me. I'd like you to get a Bible and, uh, and go to one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I said, I would recommend Matthew or John. That's what I would recommend. And here's what I would like you to do. Start at the beginning of that book and just start reading. That's all, just read it. And read it until you find Jesus there. He'll be there. When you find him, ask yourself what he's like. And then when you figure out what he's like, Ask yourself if you want him in your life. When you figure out what he's like, ask yourself if you would like a man like that in your life. And if the answer is yes and you would, just ask him to come into your life. That's all. That's all I'm asking you to do. 
I said, if you read the Bible and you don't find Jesus, or you find him and you decide you don't want him in your life, don't ask him into your life. That'd be a waste of time. But that's what I'd like you to do. Oh, pastor, the wife, man, I couldn't keep her quiet. Oh, he's got some real problems in his life. I said, sister, I don't care if he hangs on to his problems. That's fine with me. But what I'm asking him to do, read one of the Gospels. Look for Jesus. Find out what he's like. And when you find out what he's like, if you like him, ask him into your life. And I know that someone's sitting here tonight and they're thinking, wow, man, that was bright. What a great idea. I read it in a book. Someone else did it, said the same thing to a man. I thought, well, that might work. Let's try that. I didn't see him for a few days. And it was on, oh, I don't know, Sabbath. It was a few days later that after the meeting or after church, one, I'm not sure, my wife came out. I went to shake her hand. She shook my hand. I said, how is everything? And her answer was... And she sobbed and had tears in her eyes and let go of my hand and walked on. I thought, oh, man, I'm, re I'm really in trouble now. Shouldn't have followed that, that book I read. <laughs> Time to get a new book. That night, I saw the man's daughter who was in the church. I said, so how's it going? She said, you wouldn't believe it. Dad did what you asked him to do. He went home, he took out his Bible, he went to like John or Matthew or something, and he started to read. And he went looking for Jesus. And he found Jesus. And he asked himself, what's this Jesus like? And he compiled a mental list of the attributes of this Jesus he was reading about. And then he said to himself, do I want this man in my life? And his answer to himself was, yes, I do. Why would I not? And he asked Jesus to come into his heart. He said, John, my dad's life has changed. It changed like that. Instantaneous. He's committed himself to God. The junk that was in his life, much of it just fell right off. And there's some other things he's trying to shake loose of, but he, but he can see that with God's help he's going to get there. This man's life was changed because he was honest. His sin, his, his lack of performance, his inadequacy, his failings, th that wasn't the issue. The issue was, can you be honest with God? Can, can you be honest with God, friend? Can you now, or maybe when you go home tonight, can you in a quiet moment say, do, do I really want this Jesus in my life? If you do, if you do, based on not my mere encouragement or the... Uh, uh, pressure of your peers or the uh, influence of the milieu, but based on an honest assessment of the Bible. This Jesus, is he real? That sure seems real. Do I want a person like that in my life? If the answer is yes, just say to him, I want you in my life. That's all. There's not a moment in my life that I don't want you in there. Come on in. Do your thing. And if you will pray a prayer like that, have a conversation like that with God, God will do powerful things. Revival, you'll be revived. And it'll be real, real, because you've looked God in the face and said, I want you in my life. Go all the way back with me to the book of Genesis. This was in Genesis 3, if I'm not mistaken. 
Adam and Eve listen to a snake talking. That whole idea has always repulsed me because I come from New Zealand where we have no snakes, not one. In fact, because my grandmother was born in Ireland, I got myself an Irish passport. There are three countries in the world where there are no snakes. I'm a citizen of two of them. I'm thinking of becoming a citizen of Iceland just so I can get like the all three. <laughs> snakes, I just hate. Here's Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're chatting with a snake. I know they were more beautiful back then, and they weren't these, these, these little rotten things that slither around in the grass. Beautiful snake. Snake starts talking to Adam and Eve. They talk back, and before they know what's happened, they've eaten the fruit that God specifically asked them not to eat. And then they realize, man, things have changed. The robe of light disappears, and, and, and they the guilt grabs hold of them and racks them and shakes them to their core. And while they're trying to figure out what to do about it, they hear, maybe, maybe they hear footsteps, I don't know. But God was walking in the cool of the day, and he called out to them. They heard a voice, and the voice said, Adam, where are you? Funny question for God to ask. How big was the Garden of Eden? He couldn't find Adam and Eve. Today we have global positioning system. You can, you can find, I mean, I got lost on the way here tonight, but you can find anything like that. And God couldn't find Adam and Eve. Where are you? No, God knew where they were. In, in my imagination, I see God walking up to the very bush they're hiding behind and saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you? God wasn't asking Adam where he was geographically. God had his location pinpointed. God was saying, where are you spiritually, Adam? Where are you? He was prodding Adam, giving him the opportunity to think and respond and take an inventory of where he was. Adam, where are you? And so I might ask you tonight, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? What's going on in your life or what's going on in your heart? What's governing and guiding your mind? Where are your affections really, on God or not? I'm not interested in pointing the finger or castigating or blaming or ridiculing or shaming anybody. There's no life, light or life in that. But when you answer that question, where am I? Would you reach out to God tonight? Would you reach out to God tonight and say, Lord, here I am, wherever I am, but I want to be where you want me to be? In the book of Hebrews, God is explaining the new covenant. He says, I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. All God wants is to be God in your life. It's really pretty simple. Where are you? And are you willing to be where God wants you to be? He'll take care of that. You don't have to climb this mountain on your own. You don't have to buy salvation or earn it, but reach out to God and say, God, wherever I'm going, I, I know only you can, wherever I'm meant to be, I know only you can get me there. Tonight, friend, can you make a decision to say, Lord, here I am. I want to be where you are. I, I reach out my hand and ask you to take hold of it. 
I have a need. Thank God that's an argument that pleads for me. Where are you tonight? I wonder if you can, I wonder if you can experience tonight a reality check. There's no point being a Milli Vanilli Christian when through Jesus you can have the genuine experience. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.